Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode. Throughout the show, we have been covering the lives of historical figures, great and small. We've talked about railroad barons and presidents, activists, mining magnates, but some of the most fun I've had on the show is talking about figures that fly under the radar. In earlier episodes, I talked with scholars about Miriam Leslie, who is a publishing tycoon and one of the richest New Yorkers that lived a life of seduction and self-fraud. She would have been infamous in the Gilded Age, and thanks to historian Betsy Priulau, she is now a better-known figure. And the same was the case with artist Amelia Kushner, who Kathleen Langone has reviewed. How either of these incredible personalities escaped the purview of biographers until now is just astonishing. And today we have another figure of celebrity during the Gilded Age that has been largely forgotten in the United States at least, and probably much of the West, although he remains a towering figure of great importance in the Indian subcontinent, and that is Swami Vivekananda, the Hindu philosopher. During the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, Vivekananda was a major influence on world religion and popular thought. He matched wits with the leading lights of the era like William James, conceptualizing ideas about being and nothingness at the same time James was contemplating his own ideas about existence. Now, less esoterically, Vivekananda became the leading proponent of Eastern practices like meditation and yoga, two uh, practices that we are very familiar with today. Vivekananda came to American audiences during the 1893 World's Fair, when the World Parliament of Religions met in Chicago that same year. Now, we'll talk about that gathering, among, among many other, with Vivekananda's latest biographer, Professor Ruth Harris. Her book is called Guru to the World, The Life and Legacy of Vivekananda. Professor Harris is a modern historian at All Souls College at Oxford University, and her work explores the history of culture through religion, gender, race, and science. Let me explain how she can fit all this together into her repertoire. Her first book, Murders and Madness, looks at how the insanity defense shaped French criminal justice. And her second book, Lords, studied the Catholic pilgrimage site in France. And her third book took apart the infamous Dreyfus Affair, which, as we know, involved religion, bigotry, class, and society in France. For her read on Vivekananda, she moves beyond Europe to explore the transnational history of the Swami's impact. And I'm delighted to be joined by one of the leading scholars of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Ruth Harris. Welcome to the show, Ruth. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
Well, let's start with an easy question. Uh, it should be easy for a biographer uh, of Vivekananda. Let's start with who is Vivekananda? Well, Vivekananda is one of a household name in India. Um, in fact, one could argue that he's more of a household name now than Gandhi is. And that is extraordinary because we don't really know anything about Vivekananda in the West. And yet he made a tremendous hit when he came in 1893 to America, to the World Parliament of Religions. And when he did come, he astonished people by insisting on um, an equality of discourse about the nature of spirituality and also about the future of the world. And that was an extraordinary and daring thing. And when he did come, he brought with him different perspectives, wrote about yoga, and also brought with him an idea of, quote, Eastern wisdom that I think that most Americans and people in the West more generally still hold dear. And that's such an interesting thing about our perspective, I guess. You know, it's a very Western perspective that many of our listeners might have, and they might be familiar, I suspect, with Gilded Age and Progressive Era philosophers and spiritualists. Why do you think that Vivekananda hasn't appeared on their radar? There are many reasons. Um, I think it's very hard just to be kind. I think it's very hard for all of us to think about more than one or two noted names in any country. We know our own much better, but then when we go abroad, you know, we know about France, we know about De Gaulle, we know about Germany, we struggle between Goethe and Hitler. You know, these are the kinds of headline people. But I think the other reason is, is that Vivekananda recognized very quickly that he couldn't compete with the established churches. And so he delved into the world of alternative America, alternative spirituality. But the thing about American spirituality, especially in the Gilded Age, was that it was so effervescent, it moved between the orthodox and the slightly unorthodox, whether that be Christian science, new thought healing, and in that world, he was very well known. And yet he also impinged on the mainstream by having interlocutors like um, William James, uh, religious pragmatism, and actually I would say an even quiet uh, and, and almost fugitive debate between these two great figures about the nature of um, mystical thought, mystical experience. Both of them were obsessed with the notion of experience. And because of that, he sort of was subsumed into American ideas and he became lost. Um, and at the same time, I think that there are also a lot of people now who recognize that the Patanjali uh, sutras that they, that, they, that they know about from yoga really come from a kind of retranslation that Vivekananda did. Wow. I mean, it sort of begs the question, how did you come to him? I mean, I get yeah. that he gets lost, um, but much of your previous work has focused on France and Europe. And I, you say in the book, you're not a daily practitioner of yoga nope. or that you're no. not all that into meditation. And plus nope. you're a Westerner. So yeah. how do you how do you meet Vivekananda? Well, the story, there's an intellectual story, and I think that I can tell you very briefly, which is that as a French historian, I was looking at a great and famous pacifist named Romain Roland, who left France and became um, a sort of conscientious objector intellectual in Switzerland. And he had a fantasy that Gandhi would come to the West and that Gandhi would lead the anti-fascist struggle in the West. 
this fascinating story. Gandhi would have none of it. He was very polite to, to um, Roland, but that led Roland into a decade long interest in Indian thought. And he wrote about Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. And it was through reading his interpretation that I first came. And yet, if I'm honest, what I'm also really interested in from, a, I think, a more personal point of view is what happens in, to us? I mean, why is it that when disenchantment with Christianity and our own traditions emerge, why is it that we turn East? Why is it that India became, quote, the guru to the world? The book's title, Guru to the World, is very, very much um, ambivalent, be ambiguous, because I'm talking about Vivekananda and his attempts to talk to the world, but I'm also talking about this idea that India is somehow more spiritual and we are materialistic. And it was that line which comes out of, in a sense, colonialism, the Indians were metaphysical, the West was materialistic and strong, that Vivekananda both uses and deploys affirmatively, and at the same time, seeks to challenge by showing his own dynamism, his own, uh, his, his ethical and spiritual superiority in many ways to the West. And also to say the West is not the universal standard. There are other universals. He was not a relativist. He merely said there were other universals and it was part of the world to accept that there were different ways to the truth. And in that regard, he was highly provocative. And one of those things was we don't even realize nowadays that he wanted to teach yoga in the West because he thought the West was coercive and violent. And he wanted to teach people how to be mild because he had experienced imperialism. That's quite remarkable. We see yoga as something that calms us down or gives us physical fitness. But he had a kind of mission to explain to Westerners that they had an intrinsic violence to their civilization and that without the East, without India, they would not be able to overcome these ethical, moral and transcendental deficiencies. And we'll have to talk a little bit about uh, how, he, how he accomplishes that. But I wanna go back a little bit because like all biographies, you have to start with his youth and his upbringing. And, and I think you, you, you do a great job of explaining what Calcutta was like at this time, but, but how does that place really shape his thinking as a spiritualist? Well, one of the things that's so interesting is that Calcutta and the New England towns that he first visits when he comes to America are settled by the British at this pretty much the same time. Calcutta is older, but that's what we don't realize. And the other thing about Calcutta is we think of Calcutta as a place of desperation, poverty, people dying on the streets, which is no longer the case. Or, you know, things have changed. But the fact is, this is the hub of the British Raj. This is an intensely cosmopolitan city, one where they have uh, what is so called the so-called Bengali Renaissance, where they have some of the leading world intellectuals in the world, um, the people who begin to reformulate ideas about Hinduism, spirituality, but also to resist British assertions of intellectual um, priority. And he's part of this world, but he also is part of the British world. And he goes to a Scottish missionary school. 
you know, he had, he knows the Bible almost by heart. He knows it better than most of the, as, as well, at least as the people he encounters. And he speaks English like a native English person, or perhaps an Irish person. Some people thought he had a kind of brogue to his accent. So he is culturally ambidextrous in a way that's hard for us to understand. And yet at the same time, there's a pressure of this ambidexterity, which is enriching, but also at the same time, a sign of subjugation. After all, the British have dominion in India. And so he must find some way of negotiating these heritages. And he does so by deciding to go to the world parliament and making his case. It seems like the other major factor in his upbringing, and this is something that we talked about in a previous podcast with uh, uh, Professor Raylan Rabaka, who studied W.E.B. Du Bois, yes. is, the, is the role of women. I mean, women oh, yes. really shape his upbringing. And that's something that you make front and center in your biography that I, I don't know, do other biographies do that and emphasize that role? No, I mean, what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to be both... To, to acknowledge the importance of a man like Vivekananda almost as a post-colonial project. But at the same time, I'm trying not to write another great man history, right? That is conventional. Here we have another great man. This is why he's important. What I'm trying to suggest is that um, the book is as much about women, if not more than about Vivekananda. And we can only understand the creation of what he called, what, what has been called his Hindu universalism by, by recognizing how important it was. First of all, the early women in India, especially Ramakrishna's wife, her name was Sharada Devi. And she was, today she is worshiped as a goddess in India. In many ways, she surpasses even her husband and Vivekananda as a point of spiritual um, intercession and wisdom. And frankly, from the very beginning, he would never do anything without her say so. <laughs> and in fact, he would never have come to America without her. Um, she gave him permission. And this is really important. And when he comes back to India, he says, without her, she is my point. She is my one fixed point. But when he's in America, he, he meets and chooses, in a sense, or they choose him, he chooses them. Extraordinary women who make his mission a worldwide one and who make alliances with the Indian women. In some sense, it's extraordinary. These people have nothing in common. Sharada doesn't speak any English, you know? And yet they find a way of collaborating for this idea that is both um, spiritual, but also anti-colonial. What's amazing is the women he meets in America, you would have thought they would have been missionaries who were trying to get Protestantism all over the globe. And instead, some of them become rabid anti-imperialists. And the most important one is, of course, the subject of the last part of the book, which is about a woman named Margaret Noble, who's um, um, a British ext extraction, but lives in, was born in Northern Ireland. And she becomes a freedom fighter in, in, in India. I mean, so what happens is I follow him to America, but then I follow her back to India. So I can see what actually happens as the movement goes on after he dies. 
it's great to bookend the life of um, Vivekananda through these these two women. Um, but there's another inspiration that your book really focuses on in the early years of his life. And you mentioned his name, Ramakrishna. Uh, and I, I wanted to I wanted to ask a little bit about their relationship. And maybe for the listener, if you could explain who Ramakrishna is, because yes. not everyone will know oh, who no. he is. And he's, he, so give us some background and tell us about their relationship. Well, the, I start off explaining what it is for somebody like Vivekananda to come across a man like Ramakrishna. He is a Brahmin, but he's a poor Brahmin. He, Brahmin is high caste Indians. He comes from a village community, which is uh, in, in Bengal, which is utterly impoverished. Um, he refuses formal education. He is famous for his mystical trials. He comes to a new temple at a place called Dakshinishwar, and he is in love with and, 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 and beholds the goddess Kali. Now, when we talk about Kali, people know about Kali as a form of Tantra, but Kali is at the heart of much Hindu thought because Kali is both the mother of this, she's the goddess of destruction and creation. And it's a very important idea because she's also violent, even murderous and erotic, as well as being maternal. And in Hindu thought, the idea is that she's both of these things, often in a cyclical dynamic. So her mystery is these extraordinary powers and the fact that good and evil must be encompassed. And she is one of the things that does it. Now, an educated boy like Vivekananda does, is brought up to become perhaps a lawyer, perhaps a man who um, is, is on the elite of the educated class in um, Calcutta to prove his intellectuality and rationality, his ability to grapple with Western thought, both political, economic, as well as spiritual and philosophical. And he is that way, but he feels that he cannot encounter God. He cannot see God. And Ramakrishna is famous for these trances trances that take him almost to the point of madness at Dakshinishwar. And moreover, he is also within a tradition of what they call Vaishnavism, where he moves back and forth between an embodiment as a man and an embodiment as a woman. And this, the nature of his bisexuality, which is within the Radha Krishna tradition, is also something that the educated increasingly feel it's problematic. This is what the, the English make fun of these, these, these kinds of rituals, observances, and beliefs. But what's amazing is we have this very intellectual, argumentative, talented young Vivekananda, who ultimately, like many of his friends, makes his way out to Dakshinishwar and meets Ramakrishna. And he resists and he resists. The relationship goes on for five years. But despite everything, he finds through Ramakrishna a love and spiritual contentment that he never found before. And what's extraordinary is that on one level, they look like complete opposites. Ramakrishna is 
uh, a devotee, he's obsessed with love and ecstasy. Vivekananda looks like he's somebody who's rational and, and, and solid and masculine. Ramakrishna looks feminine. But underneath these apparent divergences, Vivekananda recognized the devotional in him, himself, that he's also very sentimental and loving. And Ramakrishna see, is, is incredibly intelligent and sharp. And he's a very unorthodox guru. He, uh, he loves Vivekananda so much that he allows him tremendous freedom and possibility and argumentation and everything. And by the end, Vivekananda basically takes over the movement that Ramakrishna has, has founded. Ramakrishna dies. And Ramakrishna, on some, I think, intuitive level, understands that he needs the new generation who can communicate on a global level. Somebody like Vivekananda, who speaks perfect English, which Ramakrishna cannot do. And Vivekananda then begins to think through his life course, both trying to retain Ramakrishna and adjust his vision of Hinduism to world possibilities, world realities. And if we think about what's going on in the United States at this time, there are direct parallels. I mean, you've mentioned William James, but you know, the thought around femininity and masculinity in the United States at this time- Christian mirrors, science, God right. is man and woman. That's right. That's right, so I mean, it has a real significance for how the United States is conceptualizing. And Vivekananda to me in the book is a great translator. He's able to, you know, translate the ideas of Ramakrishna for American audiences and specifically those ones that are really doing deep thinking about masculinity, femininity, you know, the sort of um, the, the way the human spirit can be bifurcated or multiple, you know, have multiple uh, cleavages. So that, and, and it seems to me it comes together in 1893. You've already mentioned that Vivekananda comes to Chicago for the World Parliament of Religions and that that event I mean, of course, it coincides with the biggest event of the year in, in American history, the, the World Columbia, uh, Columbian Expedition. What role does Vivekananda play at the World Parliament? And, and tell us how important it is. Well, it's interesting. It's very, very hard to know exactly. I mean, what happens is he's a newcomer and he's not invited. This is all part of the audacity of what he does. He arrives in Chicago and he ends up being picked up by a kind upper middle class lady named Mrs. Hale, who takes him to the parliament headquarters. And then in the end, he has to go back. He, 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 he is supported by a Harvard professor who gives him some credentials. So at first, it's not clear that he's going to be, make such a hit. There are other people there from South Asia who are more important, a man named Dharmapala, who who um, is trying to wrest um, the Buddhist side of enlightenment from, from the Hindus there. They all get together. And what happens is that, is that Vivekananda, he plays a role of, of self-orientalization at the same time while trying to remain very much himself. So he appears not as a, as a regular sannyasin in, in, in an ochre robe, but in an extraordinary, um, scarlet coat and orange turban and he's young he's stylish and he addresses people as 
equals, sisters and brothers of America. And there is something about the way he does it. And then throughout the parliament, he keeps on asserting the horrors of Christian mission, the reality of Indian famine, how people use uh, food as a way of forcing conversion. Um, on and on and on he goes. And then at the very end, in several addresses, at the end, in several addresses, he tries to lay out this foreign creed. And it's magnificence. He never mentions Hindu gods, you know, because that's associated in the Protestant American worldview with idolatry. Instead, he goes to the height of Hindu thought, which is Advaita Vedanta, this idea of the union between self and non-self, and also the idea that within is God. And of course, they love it. They also love it that he says, you are not sinners. And this is important. He knows about Calvinism. He knows about the guilt of Protestant transgression. He has rejected Christian notions of sin from his school, which where he had, as I said, Scottish mis missionaries who were teaching him. And when he says, it is a sin to call you sinners, you are God, you have God within. They, they, people remembered that years later. But if it made an impact in America, it made much more of an impact in India. They, they, when he came back, they were wild. They just couldn't believe it that he had forced the Western world to stand up and listen. And in fact, it was too much for him. He was overwhelmed by the processions, the appearances. And by this time he was already really quite ill. He dies very young, he's ill. But it's, it's, it's for them, it remains almost a legendary story in India. And it's the one thing that everybody knows in India about Vivekananda is when he went to the world parliament and then when he came back. So what, I, uh, what I'm trying to do is say, look at, a, look at this in context. And what's really interesting is when he comes to America, he likes the Americans because he because they're not English, because <laughs> they're not British. And also he, he, even though on one level, he sees that they're on the, the verge of imperial expansion themselves. After all, the Spanish-American War is just five years down the road, right? He recognizes that in their self-esteem um, is based on being themselves an anti-colonial, an anti-colonial um, democracy. And so he play, he gets all this stuff really quickly. And, but, and that's why he makes such fast friends and quick friends in America, I think. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's interesting on so many levels here. This is why I say he's a great translator is everything, everything that you say about him adopting the sort of orientalist robe, like I'll dress the way Americans think a man from India would dress. And oh, actually, I will. Yeah, yeah. The women actually help him think, I think there's some evidence, he has the turban from a prince, a Maharaja in India, but the, the coat seems to have been like the, the mutual brainchild of him and some of the ladies in, in, um, in New England. And he recognizes, he says in his letters, I have to listen to them because they are the ones who pull the cow by the nose string. That's his Indian image. And the note, of course, the women are, you know, are responsible for tending the cows for the dairy, but they're also, I mean, the cows are the sacred symbol, the holy cow, but they are also the symbol of ahimsa, of, of nonviolence. And they are, so they have a spiritual value that the cow has. So it's a very important thing when he, he recognizes, and it's only later that he becomes frustrated that he can't get male recruits. And he's surrounded by women and he wants men who will take him into the public domain even more forcefully. And he doesn't, he doesn't manage to do that for, in the same way that he wants to for all kinds of reasons. Just to say about what you said about the, being the fantastic translator, he gets that from Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna constantly told him, the most important thing to do is to speak to people in their own language. So he gets his universalism from Ramakrishna, who basically kept on saying, all paths lead to God. And so Ramakrishna not only lives and experiences all these different paths from the Indian school, Indian schools, there's so many, Shakta, Tantra, Vaishnavism, there's many, many. He also becomes, for a short time, a Christian and a Muslim. So it's that he actually, and the whole thing is, is he actually, he even thinks at one moment of eating meat and his followers tell him, don't you dare. You know, his, the idea of a Brahmin transgressing these prohibitions and a Brahmin who they see as an avatar or a reincarnation of God on earth. They don't want to eat meat. But what's amazing is he thinks of it. He thinks of it. 
he's willing to go that far. And that idea that you experience only through knowing, through your embodiment and your spirit, that you can really see what people need. And this is very different from the textual focus of Protestantism, even many Sanskrit scholars in India. There's something deeply ecumenical about him as well. And I think the idea of, I suppose this focus in his philosophy or spiritualism about a self and a non-self or an other has a real deep meaning for empire imperialism at this time, actually for all time. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how Vivekananda injects himself into the debates at the time about the British, sure, but also about global imperialism, which is really, I suppose, going through a great debate in America about, you know, you mentioned the Spanish-American War. How does he, how does he represent or inject himself into some of those debates? Well, he first injects himself through the critique of mission. mission. And again, what's so extraordinary there is you can see why the women play such a role. Because if you look, the numbers of American women who are around the world in missionary activities, that's, it's extraordinary. And one of the things about India is like uh, um, East Asia as well, the Indians resist mission. They resist Christianity. Um, they, they are not seduced by, by Christian uh, ideas. In fact, they find many Christian ideas very, very diff difficult to assimilate. And above all, they find the vision of sacrifice, despite Kali, <laughs> the vision of sacrifice of the Savior on the cross is, is, is quite upsetting, it's the Buddhists in particular. So it's very interesting to see how that works out. But the other thing that he, he harps on is um, starvation famine. And when he comes back to India, India will be going through one of its worst periodic famines. And of course, one of the things that the Indian government did after, after independence was they never had a famine again. They never left people hungry. But the, the, the horror of famine, of people dying um, from lack of food, especially when it was the British exporting grain outside of India was a nightmare that plagued them. And so when the, Vivek, the Ramakrishna mission, which he sets up in 1897, tries to find its way to helping the poor, they focus on famine. That is the thing. And Vivekananda sees one of his other monks um, who brings this vision of feeding the poor, of different denominations, they even feed Muslims, they don't just feed Hindus, essential to honoring the God within, this idea that you honor the God, the poor, by, if you honor the poor, you honor God. I mean, the book tries to explain that for, by conventional standards, Vivekananda's synthesis, if you want to call it that, is extremely incoherent. <laughs> But it, it really does transform, I mean, and make his, his missionaries quite radical. Um, at the same time, it hides what becomes later very important, which is he, in talking about India as this place of tolerance and Hinduism as a thing of tolerance, it hides the fact that there's a lot of the beginnings, 
not the beginnings, but the continuation, often intensification of intercommunal rivalry between Muslims and Hindus. And he is, after all, a Hindu monk. I mean, the ecumenical is, for anyone that thinks about global religions, transnationalism, that's going to have a, a huge, um, uh, it's, 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 it's going to be a reason why you need to study Vivekananda. Right. For those people that might not think about ecumenism or even spiritualism and philosophy that closely, you can't help but notice the number of yoga studios that are all over your neighborhood, right? So in 1896, uh, he publishes uh, Raja Yoga, which is the first manual of yoga in the West. How is the book and the subsequent speaking tour that he makes, how, how is that received? Um, it's well received. And I think it's, it's, it's an extraordinary book because by that point, it's pretty clear that he's read William James's Principles of Psychology. <laughs> and what he does in the book is that he, he holds steady to his vision of yoga, which by the way, is not inclined toward Hatha, Hatha yoga. He, 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 isn't, he doesn't like Hatha because he thinks it's too much concerned with the body and health. And he, he is concerned with spiritual things, but um, he, he both tries to hold firm to a vision of meditation that is not um, enveloped in the occult and mystery and things like that, um, but at the same time absorbs the language of um, mind, psychology, neural connection, and all the things that are seen as avant-garde and scientific. And he blends them in ways that are extraordinary. Um, for example, at this stage, many physicists are still talking about the ether, this unknowable quantity. Ether is not the ether in surgical procedures, but kind of what is in space, what is out there. But for him, he uses the word akasha. And so the whole question of translation in which he's so good is also about um, trying to find a language to communicate very difficult ideas and at the same time to win adherence for a program that is not just about spiritual self-fulfillment but is seen also without saying so explicitly, almost politically, I mean, how are you going to make these people mild, milder, you know, this, they, it, you know, it's very interesting. I mean, Gandhi would pick this up later. He's a contemporary Vivekananda, but Vivekananda dies. Gandhi goes on into his 80s, where he says, you know, the obsession with consumerism, the obsession with having um, appetites, you know, meditation is one of the ways that you calm the mind and calm desire and cultivate detachment and even higher intelligence. I mean, you know, the ojas, you know, you, 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 you become, you can concentrate the mind. And these are the aspects that we have absorbed, but we've, we've, we haven't realized that they come out of um, this anti-colonial context. <laughs> and it's like, that's been airbrushed out of history. And it's, Fascinating because it stayed with us and became, you know, part and parcel of new thought. We mixed it with other things, but we don't really recognize its roots and how it comes out of 
these extraordinary relationships Vivekananda forged, especially with these very, very competent, vocal, and activist women. Well, this is why I say that we're almost living through another Gilded Age and Progressive Era today, because the debates that we were having 120 odd years ago about bigness and growth and development and what progress is, we're having now, but we're having in a maybe a more well, maybe it's not. Some people are still arguing for those things, you know, and but there's a there's a rhetoric that is coming around where growth, desire, appetite, they're not dirty words, but they're not seen as the primary motivators for uh, a lot of people or even uh, a lot of systems and, 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 and countries. Um, the way the book is set up, we've talked about Ramakrishna, we've talked a, a bit about uh, the 1890s, but we, we, you know, we, we know that Vivekananda dies young in 1902. Um, there's another major influence that we've left out so far we've touched on who is Margaret Noble or Sister Nivedita. And I'm interested in her because she's from Northern Ireland, of course, and that's interesting. She's, she obviously lives in Britain for quite a while before going to America, but what place does, does she, what part does she play in Vivekananda's life? Well, I would say he had, he had few daughters, but I think she's a very important daughter. Um, and I think it's very interesting because they all play with these familial relationships to underscore the power of the love that makes them do the things that they do. So she acknowledges quite openly that she loses her father at a young age, that Vivekananda is the father, and she leaves everything. She's a progressive school teacher involved in um, the most avant-garde kinds of educational practices for young children, kindergartens, uh, learning through experience. And she find, and she actually says that was the bridge for her to Vedanta and, and to Vivekananda, Ex understanding that experience is the only way to truly learn. And she leaves everything, her school, her family, to follow him. And then what she does is she opens up a whole, she, she both rediscovers what she can be, which I find is extraordinary because he's actually quite rough on her. He's, he's, he's rough on her during her apprenticeship as a disciple. And in fact, he's so rough on her because I think her British patriotism annoys him. Her pedantic superiority her belief that she can fix things because she's white. All of these things, he goes after her so hard. There are other women in the, who come from America to visit. And what's interesting, they recognize that he's so hard on her that they actually tell him to stop. They're afraid he's going to break her. And he does. He slows down. And little by little, she recognizes that she's becoming a different person. She loses her allegiance to the British, she's appalled at the way the British treat an outbreak of plague in Calcutta. And so, and she, she kind of becomes in her mind, almost Indian, but her life, she's not like Vivekananda because after all, she doesn't have, uh, she's, she's, she's torn between wanting to have a leading role and, this, and recognizing that if she does that, she will be like the British who displaced the Indians. So she, she, she is much more ambivalent in her positioning in Calcutta than he is strangely in America, where he knows 
where he is and what he's fighting and what he's trying to do. So her position is difficult. And yet she's vital to him because as an educated British woman, she goes in front of the Calcutta intelligentsia and makes the defense of Kali worship. The worship of the goddess, the worship of the goddess who is violent and erotic and everything. And she says, this is from the people. This is an aggression that we need if we're going to be able to fight back. And it's extraordinary. The aggression that Vivekananda envisages is never violent. But the idea is to fight the timidity that has allowed British conquest and British repression. And so she does that. She, she translates Kali for the indigenous elite audience in India. And then she begins to bring in new influences after her trip west, whether that's in sociology. She works very closely in uh, biophysics with a man named Jagadish Bose. And she tries to construct with him what she sees as a national science. She works in economic theory. And what's so interesting is that Vivekananda has very, 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 very conservative views of the social position of women. But despite that, she ultimately recognizes that he has given her more intellectual freedom than any Westerner. And that, that's remarkable. It's a remarkable paradox because when she first comes, she almost lives in Perda you know, hidden away. But by the end, she, he recognizes that she must do her own thing. And it's, it's, it's a fantastic, it's fantastically interesting because a man who's quote, conservative with a small C, she also views as her liberator intellectually and spiritually. So on the terms of the relationship, relationally, it's a very, very interesting one. But she's always tormented by whether or not she's being a good disciple. Is she being, quote, a good girl, you know? Is she satisfying her father? Is she being too much for herself? These are the kinds of worries that never, of course, plague Vivekananda. And so we have all the story of all her ambivalences and her attempts um, to, to live it. And it's not an easy, it's not an easy one. It's an exciting life, fulfilling, often doesn't go where she wants it to go, but it is extremely complicated for her. And difficult. It sounds like it's a real struggle for many years before there's this uh, acceptance and uh, I suppose her, her sort of awakening uh, to her own personal self and her fulfillment of that, of that self. It's, it, it's a fascinating story. And, and the question is whether she ever really gets there. You know, that's the other thing. Um, you know, it's, 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 What's very interesting is to see when the torment he's put through as an American in America, when people th think that he's a Negro, a black man, they call it Negro at the time, and they won't put him in a hotel. They won't allow him to be in the hotels. Um, and then when she goes to India and the women just don't, the people around just don't understand what is she doing there, you know? And she has to live near Sharada Devi to maintain her reputation. She has to prove, and also the language difficulty. She wasn't a great linguist. So she was also, you know, betwixt and between. Sometimes she was with the English, sometimes she, but she was with the, the elite um, Bengali English speakers, but it, 
And yet she was constantly trying to also communicate with the poor in her neighborhood. And the girls that came into her school, and she writes at one point of her frustration, she says, every time a girl becomes exquisite, she gets married. And they can be 12, you see? And so she must try and again, understand that she's in a different culture and yet she res resents it. She resents that they're getting married. By the way, Vivekananda was equally opposed to child marriage. So on that, they were completely on the same path. But it just shows how difficult it is and how foreign India was to her. Well, can I just say, if I can shower some praise on the book a little bit more, uh, this is how you write a, a good story about gender, class, race. And this is not happening in a domestic context. It's happening in a global context. You know, and this is why Vivekananda is so important for the time in the Gilded Age of Progressive Era, because talking about self and other in his philosophy is, is a narrative for just about every uh, experience, you know, that was going on in this time, no matter who you were. So I, I, I'll leave it there for people to delve deeper into the, the philosophies and the, the two leading inspirations who are Ramakrishna and uh, Margaret Noble. And, and just, I wanna speak a little bit about his passing because we, we've already foreshadowed this. He dies fairly young. Uh, he predicts an early death as well, which I think is interesting. Uh, and he does indeed pass before his 40th birthday, but how does his passing enhance his reputation or, or diminish it maybe in the case of the United States? Well, of course, we never know because it's an empirical cul-de-sac. You know, because he dies young, there are all kinds of things, imponderables. I mean, what would have happened to him if he would have been involved in the early anti-colonial struggles? Would have he become more Hindu, more universalist? It depends what would have happened. The other thing is, is that he dies as a great yogi, you know, which is he does his usual activities. He teaches Sanskrit. He goes back home and then he dies and he dies with the blood coming out of his nose. And that's very much the idea that it's from the head, the intellect. And he dies in a way that's seen as in, in a transcendental trance that only the highest are able to reach. Now, again, this image, I mean, who is writing about this? Who has seen it? How much are they seeing it through the lens already of a great master? And, in, and, and imposing the great death, it's not known. But this is definitely how he was is seen. On one level, the fact that he dies young leaves him untarnished by the struggles of nationalism and the faction building that occur afterward. On another level, we, do, we don't have him there in the, 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 the struggles themselves. Um, to see how he would have reacted, for example, to intercommunal violence. What would have been his position on um, uh, Muslim Hindu unity? Would he have, what, what would he have thought about the different communities? I mean, intellectually, he was all for a diversity that we can hardly understand. I mean, India is so diverse that he recognized that um, you could not use ethnicity as the um, yardstick for unity. And he was constantly telling his Indian colleagues, people from all up and down the subcontinent, how important that was. But that's why he wanted to use Vedanta as the unifying thing, this idea of self and non-self, the God within. 
On the other hand, this was a Hindu concept. So was that an imposition? So all these questions became part of his legacy. And that's why today people use him on virtually across the political spectrum. I mean, there are Marxists who feel that they were inspired by him. And then there were Hindu nationalists who, who claim him as their own. Well, that I think you make a great point of not reducing his legacy to any contemporary political ideology that he can represent many. And, you know, having written about legacy myself, I know that that is there's many uses and abuses of, you know, oh historical <laughs> figures. Yeah. Uh, but it, it also makes it difficult to attribute meaning. And I think you've said that in terms of how we might have considered Vivekananda in modern Indian history. Um, uh, legacies can become ambiguous, but what can we learn from him today? And who do you think are the, at least in the United States, who do you think are the ones that are invoking the legacy of Vivekananda or are there any, or is it strictly an Indian sort of uh, uh, legacy? I don't think it's just an Indian legacy. I think there are many people, uh, teachers of yoga who recognize that it's Vivekananda. And I think it's very important. And I think it's, and even that is ambiguous because there were many Muslims who also practice yoga. And by the time he's finished with it, it becomes very much more associated with the Hindu side. Um, I would say also that we need to think, we need to think and rediscover and discover in a way these great figures of the of the Fantasiecla, the, the early 20th century that are not just American and begin to think about the interaction between America poised on its global power and its relationship to influences that were even today unrecognized. I was really chuffed by what you said about this is the way to write about gender, this is the way to write class, this is the way to write about spirituality. But I would say that the, that the key to what guided me, my my guiding light was to focus on people. It was not about abstract categories, but to recognize the ambiguities and conflicts in all these life stories and to use that as the vehicle for understanding those more abstract concepts and to do it hopefully, I hopefully with some human empathy. It does, and, I mean, it, it shines through the writing. Yeah. I mean, as you were talking about personalities that have been lost to history there too. I was furiously scribbling down Henri Bergson because, you yes. know, as a French historian, I just think this is another one that we, you know, please tell me you're writing the biography of Henri Bergson. <laughs> no, but I have to say that Bergson also, we don't realize it because he, he can preach Judaism to Catholicism, but Bergson also, his, his work on time, I'm convinced has much relation, has an important relationship to a rehash Orientalism you know, and that we haven't yet discovered that. And I could definitely do it, but I want to, I mean, even though my book, I wanted to hit people with the importance of the, the discussion and interaction between past and present. And I think Vivekananda is so present now in India, but the, his global dimension is so forgotten there that when I talk about it, they don't know anything. But in America, he's forgotten on both counts. And the question is, what does that say about America and about Britain and the West? I mean, why are we so forgetful of those who have influenced us 
And why do we gobble them up into the culture of perhaps, you know, consumerism and, you know, uh, self, self, self. I mean, one of the things about it is, is that Vivekananda's doctrine was not about, it was about selfhood. He said, you know, the realization of self and God consciousness were two sides of the same coin. When he meant God consciousness, he didn't mean God as a figure, distant figure, but recognizing the relationship between the God within and the God within everyone else. And this, I think, is a really powerful thought. It's a very different universalism. And it also says, as I said, Western Enlightenment universalism is not the only universalism. It's, and that's what he was saying. I'm coming to tell you about something you don't even know is important. And that we were going to have more and more of that, I think, as we try to deal with these questions of scale, climate, human possibility, and everything else. Well, can I just say that's a great way to end the show because it was actually Harvard University Press that reached out to me to say, here's something that you don't know about. And I said, <laughs> a, a book about Vivekananda, is that for the Gilded Age and Progressive Era podcast? And they said, yes, just read it. I read it and I couldn't agree with them more. This is a great story about how we connect the past to the present and Vivekananda is a central figure in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. And Ruth, I can't thank you so much. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show to, to share that with us. <laughs> very much it was a real pleasure to talk to you thanks so much ruth well that's all we have time for thanks for listening you can follow the gilded age and progressive era on twitter or on my website michaelpatrickcullenane.com please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show i hope you'll join me again for the next episode Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.